0: Hi, welcome to Real Good Stuff. I'm Scott Clapson. We are here tonight for a new series, Sunset Sounds. I don't know if you can hear any of them. There's so much as I've been sitting here trying to get quiet and find a comfortable spot that felt right. I sat in a few places. I walked around Echo Park Lake. I don't know if you hear the music. There's someone walking back and forth, playing music, as he does his exercise, or they do their exercise. I'm in a different part of the park than I usually come. I found some grass, I took off my shoes, I sat under a tree, rather than on a bench, on the ground, connected to the earth, connected to the dirt and the soil and the grass and all of the things living here in the ground. I'm grateful for the metal bench. I'm grateful for the way it supports my body. I'm grateful for the way that it serves a functionality in the space here around the lake, each of these benches that I've sat on. But as I sat over there, it didn't feel natural. The show came about today, full disclosure, Honest Truth, sitting here in Echo Park. As I'm listening to Sounds of the Sunset, I'm thinking about the last three days with the Aspire Conference, the Unconference, as I heard it called again today, with Dr. Sam Collins. There's a recent episode of Real Good Stuff called Be an Encourager with Sam Collins. It was a beautiful three days of connecting, of spark plugging, of Motivating of inspiring of dancing with grief and sharing grief and dancing some more. So many wonderful connections were made. I even got to make a wonderful connection with a woman who was talking about doing a sharing of the gospel podcast, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and sharing of that gospel to this language in the world that maybe it's not on an audio version for that and we were emailing today and it was just beautiful i was i was so taken by that because i've been wanting to do that english is the only language that i have really been able to take sort of a a command of so to speak although i've tried here comes the music again speaking of dancing i think that's funny i love it sunset sounds sunset sounds, sunset sounds. It was interesting. We talked about what it is to read the Bible on a podcast. Now I wouldn't have known this. And I think of intellectual property. I don't think about the word of God or the word of the Lord or the Bible or whatever, but there is a intellectual property issue. Now, I don't know the country that she is recording from is not the United States. These women were from all over the world. So maybe the the copyrights are different. We're going to be talking more, but it was just interesting how many people I'm connecting with not just through this conference, but through so many things that whether it's podcasting or not, we all have a story to tell. We all have a sound to make. We all have some way that we need to take up space in this world. I need to take up space in this world. It's important to take up space in this world. It's important to be doing this here right now because I'm challenging my own stereotypes within myself. And the way that I was taught to podcast, and the way that I learned to podcast, and the way that I engaged with podcasting was it happens inside. It happens in a studio. It happens in a confined space. It doesn't happen in a park. It doesn't happen in a lobby at the California Endowment. It doesn't happen so many different places. The garden at the AT Center. The garden at St. Timothy's Episcopal Church. The William Mulholland Memorial Fountain. I love that place. The parking lot at Hollywood Adventist Church inside a cardboard gami shelter with Genevieve Lang. You should check that out. The interview with Sila with Dorit Guerrero. That one was awesome. That was great. I had just gotten into interim housing. It was the last of 17 episodes that we recorded when I was living on the street. And it was just this, you could feel it. I can feel it. Listening to it now there's a relief in my voice there's a joy in my voice that wasn't there in the first 16 episodes because i was waking up on the ground because i was waking up outside and even then i hadn't had very many nights sleep it's interesting how our mental health can change and how who we are can change when we have the opportunity to rest when we need to when we have a space to go where we're not harassed by people And I realize that even sometimes being inside, that is not always the truth. So we need to acknowledge that as well. I need to acknowledge that as well. It's also very much a privilege to be a male sitting in a park with a microphone in my hand under a tree. Now, maybe nobody's paying attention to me. It's Los Angeles. But that's this first episode of Sunset Sounds. Like Alyssa Edwards, I've got a Red Bull, so I'm going to take a drink of my Red Bull. I love you, Justin. I hear Alyssa Edwards. I hear that you give people who are living outside dollars as well. Now, maybe not now because we're not outside as much. I am, but I guess maybe other people aren't. But thank you, Alyssa Edwards, for doing that. That's really sweet of you. Thank you for witnessing people. So I've been thinking a lot today as I've been inspired to record because There's some other new things I'm going to be working on. But as I was listening to all of these women share, and I was having an opportunity to share when it was my turn, and just the things that we talked about, and the things that were shared, and the stories that I heard, and the ways that I related, and just the ways that I even fell even more in love with the work of Dr. Sam Collins, and how fortunate I am to connect with her in this way. This idea of what the sunset means to me. I've been thinking a lot about all of these things that I do and have done in my life and ways that I've been present with other people. What ways can I be present more with myself even beyond recording the Italian series? The Italian series is amazing. I love the Italian lesson series. It's so much fun. It's wonderful as is the podcasting wisdom series, but something that I do outside of all of that, that it's always been something that goes back as long as I can remember practically is watching the sunset, this practice of watching the sunset of even if it's for a few minutes, because maybe the day's so packed I can't get outside and find a spot to sit, but I can watch the sky change colors. But finding a place to sit or stand or be and witness the sunset is something that I've done for as long as I can remember. And I've been thinking about that a lot lately. Memories and who I am and what it means to be Scott how long I've been Scott, all of the things that have happened to Scott, and a large portion of these stories and a large portion of who I am are things revolving around the sunset. We recently did a recording with the Pico Union Project, and the organizer asked me before I started the song what I was grateful for, like what was my favorite Thanksgiving memory. And it was literally 2019. It was... It was being at the beach and and there being a sunset and just being there in between two big gigantic storms in Oregon because I was back for a visit. And there was a storm right as I was flying in and there was a storm as I was leaving. And right in between, right at Thanksgiving, there was this beautiful day, a sunny day, a wonderful day without any wind, without a lot of extra things going on. It's just a peaceful day. And the day had been filled, much like today, with connection. A lot of connecting with people that I hadn't seen in a little while. And quite possibly because I feel like the Oregon chapter of my life, in the sense of living there and spending time there, has closed, or at least is perceivably closed. It's cold there. I don't have desire to live in a rainy climate. I don't have a desire to live in a place where I can't be outside without a big jacket on. I like being able to be outside and see the sunshine. And that happened multiple times today on the Zoom with these ladies. As we would go into breakout rooms, the very first thing they would say, Oh, where's Scotty? Scotty, Scotty, where you are is so sunny. It's so, you know, because these ladies were from... All over the world, a number of them are from the UK. Sam is from from the UK, from England. There's a lot of ladies from there. There's a number of ladies from Africa. There's a number of ladies from all different places around the world. Julie. (laughs) Julie, if you're listening to this, oh my gosh, thank you for making me feel included and seen in the last couple of days. You're amazing. My new friend Julie. Super excited But I love being in an environment like that, where the sun is out. I'm a Leo. I love the sun and this thought of these memories and the sunset and memories fading and the sunset fading and thinking about the grief of my father and thinking about the grief of the people that I've lost. And when these memories come up and I'm not sure why I'm feeling something, I'm not sure why something is happening the way it's happening, a day is ending the sun is changing. People come and people go. We we all live and we die and and I've had to accept that. I've I've lost a lot of people in my life. I started losing people. The first one I really distinctly remember was Uncle Stubb, Norm Van Brocklin, the Flying Dutchman. If you follow football, I don't, but I know who he is. Uncle Stubb, the Flying Dutchman. I remember him him dying. I was I was young, I was really young. I was maybe 9, 10 years old. I was a little kid. So I've been thinking, I've been thinking a lot about Uncle Stub and losing Uncle Stub and being on the Jet Boat at a, as a little boy with just very few people and this being my first like grief, my first loss. I lost the turtle when I was 9, PJ. That was a whole other <laughs> if my mom ever listens to this podcast. Poor PJ. He was hibernating and apparently um, maybe he's out somewhere living in Wairika. That's where we ended up burying him. But he was my first animal loss, but my first person loss was Uncle Stubb, and I didn't really know I didn't really know Uncle Stubb. I had only met him, you know, briefly, a couple times. At a family reunion and some other stuff for the Van Brocklands, my grandmother's side on my mom' side, the maternal grandmother, Pauline Bart, Pauline Van Brocklin. It's her brother. So Uncle Stub died. Norm, he died when, like I said, I was I was very young. I don't remember exactly the year, but I remember going with my mom, and I remember being so nervous. I remember being scared. I remember Dennis, her cousin, being there. I remember feeling this overwhelming sense of loss as we were in the jet boat. I didn't really know the man, but for some reason I was there at this, this moment, this, this huge moment, this football star. I don't even know who was in the boat with us, but that was my very first moment with grief. The next time grief happened was with Nana. I was about 13 years old. Emily Clapson, Emily Barry was her maiden name, Emily Clapson, my dad's adopted mom. I don't remember her not having emphysema. I don't remember her being healthy. I don't remember her not having breathing problems. I do remember sneaking out under the back porch with her and being fascinated with, why couldn't Nana just do what Nana wanted to do? If Nana wanted to have a cigarette and the doctor said don't have a cigarette, if that's what Nana wants, let Nana have a cigarette. Nana was, wasn't was like she was a young person. She was quite, you know, she'd smoked for a long time. She wasn't like she was dying when she was in her 40s. If she wanted to have a cigarette, let her have a cigarette. Her time on the earth was short anyway. Nana and Poppy in particular, more than Albert and Pauline, seemed older to me. They seemed older. My my mom's parents seemed more accessible. They seemed closer in age. They seemed more human. Nana and Poppy seemed more sort of robotic, if that makes sense. Like, everything in their house was always like perfect and perfect and perfect. I don't know. It was just weird. I just... And, and nothing ever moved. <laughs> That's the other thing I remember. Nothing ever fucking moved in Nana and Poppy's house. Why did you move that? Oh, I didn't move that. <laughs> Excuse me, I didn't move that. Pardon me. Pardon me, I didn't touch. Did not touch anything. What did you touch, Scott? I didn't touch anything. Nana and Poppy. But I remember Emily. Emily, I loved Emily. She was the one who encouraged my parents to buy me... A keyboard got my first keyboard when i was about eight years old i love you emily nana for encouraging my parents to to live into my musical gifts emily was the mother of another son Dwayne. he had a music store when i was a kid and i used to go into that music store and spent a lot of time in there my dad worked there for a little bit when i was a little boy and i would just go in there and i would look at the records and i would you know listen to him play the accordion or the piano he He could pick up all sorts of instruments. He was not blood-related to us. Like I said, my dad was adopted. I have so many memories of Emily and music, and she wasn't musical, but like they had an 8-track and a record player, and they had all of these things. I loved being at their house. I loved the music that came to play in the den. And my cousin is a rapper. He makes a lot of music. My dad's nephew... David. He's also a Leo, by the way. So he was making music in that room, and they're done. I was playing the keyboard in there. I was really into. I was really into music. Really into music. I can't really say that I was making music in the way that David was. I was more just goofing around at that age. I was very young when this was happening. But Emily had a big part in music in my life, and I remember finding out when she died. We were at church, I believe. Or we're just going to church or something. My mom was there visiting them with Nana, with Emily. We called her Nana, and she died. Music was a part of the second death. Now, Emily was super close to me, unlike Uncle Stubb, unlike Norm. Super close to me. We were going over there once a month, every month, for like three years or more. To be with her because my mom wanted to support them and, and everything. She was really sick and had been sick for a long time. And so we spent a lot of time in the where, ironically, my mom had grown up. Both of my grandparents, both sets of grandparents, were very much a part of my life as a little boy. We're always there for Christmas. Nana and Poppy, Emily and Bill on Christmas Eve, and then Albert and Pauline, Grandma and Grandpa, on Christmas Day. They lived four blocks apart. We'd celebrate Christmas Eve with Nana and Poppy and we'd leave that night after we celebrated and we'd wake up at Grandma Grandpa's in the morning. Christmas for me was magic. We'd have this, you know, kind of on Yama Street, more downtown four blocks. It wasn't downtown, but more like modern house, big plate glass windows, modern outside and like very groomed. I mean, just everything fucking perfectly groomed at Nana and Poppy's place and up on this little like bank in this like neighborhood that was kind of really cool little sidewalks and stuff and right up the street from the Victorian homes and then grandma and grandpa were four blocks up the street now just four blocks up the street in a little town of 8,000 people like Wairika can be hugely different grandma and grandpa had fruit trees and bees and gardens and a huge front yard and backyard and not that Nana and Poppy didn't have that they had that too but But Grandma and Grandpa had a huge, big field and everything that looked out past where they lived. So like their house felt like it was on the edge of town because it literally was on the edge of town. So going to Grandma and Grandpa's house felt like going to the country. And their dining room window and living room window looked out to Mount Shasta, a big volcano up there. So for me, Christmas Day was always super magical. And there was a church right across the street from Grandma and Grandpa. So there was always things happening. It was always snowing. It was always magic as a child. So having Emily die like that right in the middle of my childhood was a big upset. And that's when grief became a part of my life. That's when sunsets became a part of my life. I remember as a little boy standing at the end of the street. We'd stand at the end of the street and there's this little street in Brookings called Iris. It's a tiny little street. It's literally a block, like a little residential short little block it's all that it is it's no longer than that there's another street called hub street that's like that and more street that's like that but iris is this little street and it's the only street that's like this in that neighborhood maybe the whole town that just the end of it is a cliff the end of it is a huge drop off i don't know how high it is probably 100 feet or more, down into this like cove. It's very beautiful. But often during the year, the sun, the way Brookings faces, it's a south-facing beach. And the way that the sun would set, would set right in between the houses at the end of the street, at the end of Iris. We moved there when I was about two, right around the time my brother was born, because we were living in a single wide out in Harbor in in, an unincorporated Curry County at that time in Southern Oregon. We moved into Brookings when I was about two, right around the time my brother was born. We lived there till the time I was 13, right around the time that Nana died. And sunsets have been such a part of our lives because every time the sun would set, you'd go out and you'd see this breathtaking beauty, this beautiful, awe-inspiring thing happening the thing that lights our planet, our planet is literally rotating away from it and we are watching it go. The sun is not going down. We are literally, and I can feel it right now, it's, it's almost like I can feel like we are flipping upside down watching it pass. Nana died the time that we moved. Now we moved to harbor, strangely to even farther out, <laughs> In Harbor, then, we lived like a block and a half out farther into a place that hadn't even been developed, that had just been a hillside, basically, with trees. My parents bought a lot, and we put a mobile home, a double-wide mobile home instead of a single-wide. It was actually fairly nice, but we didn't really have much of a yard. We didn't have a huge yard when we were living on Iris Street either, but we had a front and backyard and a driveway. We didn't really have that in harbour it was very different and we also didn't have the sunset but my life changed my life changed i became a lot more involved in church my parents took some time off of church and i continued to go and i began to get more involved at church i began to play the clarinet i was given a clarinet and someone in the church who was doing the music named harold keach started teaching me to play the clarinet And it was really fun. I had a good time. I was not super good at it, but I learned a lot about music. And some folks started coming to the church at that time. And I was playing the organ at the church. This was back, if you're from Brookings and you're listening to this, back when the Nazarene church was on Fifield. We started going to the Nazarene church when I was about four, way back in 1978. We were living on Iris Street. The parsonage from the Nazarene church was two houses down from us. And so they invited my parents over for a Bible study one night. The pastor and his wife did. And the rest is history. We became a part of the Nazarene church when I was about three and a half. Very young little kid. Super young. Good memories. Some bad memories, but some good memories. I think there's good memories all the time. Even, you know, waking up on the street, there were good memories. Grief, there are good memories. But just thinking about the sunset and thinking about, you know, moving to harbor, it felt like my world had been flipped upside down. All of a sudden, I was confronted with these memories of being a little boy and this resentment towards my brother of, you know, why the fuck are you here? (laughs) You ruined my life. Like, I loved my relationship with my father and... My brother is very different from me, and I always felt robbed of a connection with him when I was younger because my brother was very athletic and very into cars and sports and go-karts and things my dad could relate with, and I was not. And I always felt very disconnected. And so by the time I got to be about 13, I was thinking about coming out. We'd moved. My world was flipping upside down. And these folks started coming to the church. And I was playing the organ in the church. My parents had got me a piano. When I was like 10, there was a couple in the church who sold my parents a used piano for like $125. It was really actually nice of them. And I learned on it. That engaged me a lot in the music that was happening in the church. And there was a man and his wife, Stan and Linda Weisenborn. They started coming to the church. They became very involved. The church started a worship team and Stan and Linda were very involved in the music. And I was playing the organ for the early service in the morning. I became very attached to them because I related to their authenticity. I related to their authenticity. I related to he and his wife, he and Linda. I related to Stan's ability to communicate even in difficult situations, and to reconcile. I appreciated his connectedness. I appreciated his realness. I also appreciated that he was a bigger guy, and he didn't care that he was a bigger guy, and that he just lived with that. I appreciated that he wasn't trying to change who he was to fit somebody else's ideals. My life was looking great. The flipping upside down, the sunset of my life that was happening when I was 13, when Nana died, when all these things were happening, the flipping upside down, that, that that grief, it felt like it was on an upswing and things were positive and things were going well. And I had a cute bedroom and I told my parents when I was 15 that I thought I was gay and that didn't go so well. But I didn't care. I was becoming who I am fully. And I had a lot of support. Stan was one of those people. Stan, wise and born, I love you. I remember the day and I remember where I was We were at Harris Beach. He meant a lot to me. Stan Weisenborn means a lot to me today. I still think about him, who's a mentor. One of my very first real mentors when I was, you know, old enough to, I think, really understand what that was and what that meant. And that I was learning from a man who was older than me, who had a heart that was similar to mine, similar sensitivities to mine, who cared like I did, who had a similar calling to what I have. And I appreciated all of that. Harris Beach is a beautiful beach. And I had a car at the time I was 16. I was so excited about life. I was looking cute and feeling cute and things were going really good. And I had just gone back to public high school and after a couple year bout with Christian High School that didn't go so well for the first two years, Fort Dick Bible Academy. Shout out to Fort Dick Bible Academy. Yes, that is the name of the school. Fort Dick Bible Academy. My gosh, (laughs) I can't even believe I went to school there for two years, freshman and sophomore year. But I went back to public high school and things were going really well. And I remember being down at the beach. It was a youth group thing with the church. Someone came down to the beach and said, have you heard Stan Wisenborn died? It was so bizarre. This was before cell phones, right? I was 16, so this was 1974. 84 would be like 1990. It happened in a scuba diving accident. He apparently had a heart attack or something while he was scuba diving. That is probably the death outside of my father and Eric that have hit me the most. If there was like a, a grief scale... This was the first person that I had met that wasn't related to me. And someone that, honestly, I thought that we would be friends for a really long time. He was one of those people that if you're ever a young person and you look up to an adult and you're like, Oh, I can't wait till I can be friends with this adult. Like, as an adult, if you've ever done that, I used to do that a lot. <laughs> I was a weird little boy. Oh, I want to I be friends with this adult. I'm going to be friends with this adult. Stan Weisenborn was one of those adults and he was dead, another sunset. Now things like this continued throughout my life. It's, I've lost so many people. I've lost a college roommate, Mark Aragon. That was a shock, that was, gosh, a while ago. I've lost a high school classmate, Todd Lang. That was a few years ago, but there were a few others. There was a classmate, she jumped off the Thomas Creek Bridge. I had just gotten back to high school, to public high school. This is right around the same time that Stan died. And I was in sophomore English because I wasn't able to place well enough to go into junior English. So I was in sophomore English to catch up. And as I sat in that class, one of the people I made friends with was this sophomore, Marianne. And it was just weird because it was the first person that died that I didn't know very well, but that I had just connected with. And that continued. That's continued multiple times. I've lost, well I've lost quite a few people actually there's been a few people during the pandemic now that I know that have taken their lives that were not close to me but I know them and a couple of them I was acquaintances with and a guy that I used to have a crush on that we went on a few dates his name was Ben, I can name his name I'll name his name He he took his life a while ago that was really sad a few years ago and then of course there's Regan and Eric Regan and I dated and it just occurred to me as Facebook memories do that this was the week that Regan and I were planning to go to Texas now Regan and I didn't date very long but if you know me I burn like a bright flame and when I love someone I love them hard and I love them deep and Reagan and I connected, and I loved him. I do love him still. I think about him, surprisingly, for the short period of time he was in my life. I was in a really toxic living situation, and he told me that I needed to get out of it. And he said, come to the house that I'm living in. It'll be great. He lived in a house in Portland, and I was going to Portland State. This was 2012, and I was really excited we were going to get a place together after the holidays in Vancouver over the river. He said it was cheaper. We'd even gone over there to look at places. Just drive around and, you know, see what was for rent. Called phone numbers. We were even looking at a church to buy, to open it up, to house people and do like a non incubator there's a number of churches because of gentrification in North Portland as happens with these neighborhoods that, you know, just end up sitting vacant. I'm sure as development proceeds through Portland, they'll be torn down if they're old enough and you know, something will happen with them. But there was a number of churches in North Portland that were for sale and I wanted to buy one. I thought it would be cool. And he loved the idea. I took him to scrap in Portland. If you've ever been to scrap PDX, it's great. Check them out online. They're like an upcycled craft store, like for like teachers and, and other people that are doing like crafts with like paper and yarn and ribbon and all of that it's really cool i took him there i took him to the best food bank run by some adventists way out like way in deep east portland out near gresham somewhere i forget what what church it was it was a big adventist church and they have a beautiful food bank with a lot of trader joe's food it's set up like a grocery store you get like a cart and everything i'm sure you don't get a cart right now because it's covid and they may have something different who knows but he and I had such a great connection he took his life that sunset was hard that came six months after my dad died so the timeline with that was really close together he broke up with me December 12th 2013 right as we were supposed to leave for Texas kicked me out into the snow in Portland I was homeless in the snow in 2012 during the holidays that was hellacious it was awful I didn't know what was going on with him. He was going through an addiction and some other things. I had no idea what was happening. But I ended up going to see my dad. And and I don't know if Reagan and I had been together. I don't know that I would have gone to see my dad. I don't know that I would have gone to be there for that. So in a way, it was a blessing. Because I got to be with my father before he died. But it took a couple of months of being homeless in Portland of my dad to convince me to go back. My dad died on July 17th, 2013. Just... Six months, basically, from the time that Reagan broke up with me. Seven months. Devastated. I cried for six months. And as I came out of that crying, I remember being in church one day, and I get this Facebook message. Someone with the same last name that I recognized, and it was his mom. And he took his life. And as I sit here and I listen to Sunset Sounds, and I think about the sounds around me and what it means to be connected to the ground and connected to the earth and to watch this sort of flipping back, this backflip that we do as the sun sets. This, like, I'm, I'm assuming that, you know, you're looking at the sunset as it passes over. I had no idea that he was struggling. I knew we had problems. We all have problems. Everybody's got problems. Even the rich people you see on TV have problems. But I did not know that he was struggling like he was. That was a loss of someone that I did not know very well. But I loved a lot. I spent a lot of time trying to be there. It explained a lot. Once he was gone, things I didn't know, things I couldn't figure out in the short time that we were together, that became very apparent when we weren't, Living together, it wasn't so apparent. When we were living together, it became very apparent that something was up. Something wasn't. Something was not able to be explained. That not that long later was explained. Which leads me to Eric. Which leads me to probably the hardest sunset of my life besides my father. The person who made me into an activist. The first man who. I think when we first started spending time together, he was honoring me. There was no intention, I don't think, of him wanting to have a physical relationship. He did when he first, you know, talked to me. Of course he did. I could tell he did. And I liked it. But not once I found out he had a partner. But when they had broken up and they were still living together, he and I had spent time together. He'd come over and he'd watch Oprah with me. If you live in Los Angeles, you might know there's a time way back. This was about 2000, somewhere in there. Oprah was on in the middle of the night reruns. I loved it. Loved it. And once he figured out that I loved it, we had a blast together. He'd come over. We'd watch it. I was in beauty school. Oh my gosh. We had so much fun together. He was such a special friend. We went to Long Beach Pride together one year. We took the train down there. He lived like a block away. So even after we had a terrible, when we did finally date, it was a disaster. It was an absolute disaster. And I won't even go into the details, but it was an absolute disaster. And it was... He told me that I was too emotional and that he didn't want to be around me anymore, even as a friend and all of this. But again, there was an addiction involved. He he was addicted to meth. And it's so sad because I had no idea. I did not know all of the stuff that was going on in his life. It's been very bizarre. It's been very bizarre to think about Eric because I think about him a lot. After everything came out later, after our physical intimacy in our relationship ended and we just went back to being friends after a time apart of not really talking. He told me he wanted nothing to do with me so I respected that and we would see each other in passing and he would kind of you know put his nose up at me and I would be like whatever and I would let him be a snot and we wouldn't speak. But because we lived so close together we were regularly waiting on the same bus or walking to the train at the same time or seeing each other Over this time, I don't know, things happened, and we reconnected. I don't remember even how long it was, if it was six months or if it was a year. I don't think it was ultimately that long. He was still living with the ex-boyfriend. I don't know what's happened to the ex-boyfriend. I even forgot the ex-boyfriend's name currently at the moment. But it was so interesting. It was interesting because he and I became friends on a whole other level, and it was the first time that... I had become friends with a guy that I had dated in a very real way, in a I'm-gonna-hang-out-with-you way and spend time with-you way that doesn't involve intimacy, that doesn't involve physical contact, that just involves being friends, that just involves really great conversations because he and I had really great conversations about homelessness, about listening, about so many different things. Oprah... (laughs) Because we continue to watch Oprah together. We continue to watch Oprah together. I miss him. We weren't when we went to Long Beach Pride. We weren't together. We thought we were rekindling something, but no, it didn't happen. He decided to go live on the street. He had HIV. He was a black man. Handsome black man. Oh my gosh. One of the most handsome men I've ever dated. A very just strong and... Oh gosh, yes. Eric... Oh yes beautiful beautiful man beautiful man he had hiv he had an addiction to sex really unsafe sex like really unsafe sex And i did not know about any of this he had some other things that he was dealing with in his life he had this on again off again relationship with this guy that from what I gathered later was really super abusive and that's why he was abusive to me because he lived with somebody that he loved that was abusing him and I think I think physically abusing there were so many times that he would talk to me and I would just be like dude what what are you doing and I think that was the thing that ultimately ended the connection between he and I he and his partner were fighting so much that they broke up, but his partner wasn't going to let him date me. I lived a block away. I had my own apartment, and that was a cute apartment. He probably knew I would have moved Eric in in a heartbeat, given the chance. I had a roommate at the time, but I would have kicked her ass to the fucking curb. <laughs> Eric would have been a lot more fun to live with, although, like I said, I didn't realize at the time what he was dealing with. I miss him. The hardest sunset of my life. Because of the intersectionality of having HIV, and this was in 2000, this was pre-PREP, this was pre-all of it, this was 2000, things were a little bit different than they are right now. Los Angeles looked different. Rampart Village where I was living, where he and I were living, looked a lot different. There wasn't very many white people down in that neighborhood at first, and Beverly at that time. First in Vermont. He got really tired of dealing with all of it. And we... we made these friends, I, I I met this couple, and I've mentioned them in other shows and other podcasts, Alicia and Ray, and they used to sleep at Virgil Middle School, there's a little auditorium right there, and they used to sleep right there up on the steps, and they'd set their stuff up in the afternoon, and he and I would go and we would talk to them, and they had to move their stuff during the day, and... W- he and I would go, because I became friends with them, right? And I would take them food, and they would confront me and tell me, hey, you know, don't bring us McDonald's, bring us KFC. And I'm like, well, that's picky. I didn't even realize what they were going through. I'd never been homeless before at that point in my life. I'd never been without a home that period. And I remember one night walking by with Eric, and they said hello. And Eric said, let's go talk to your friends. And so we went over and we talked to them and we had a really great conversation. The three of them really connected. The three of them, Eric and Alicia and Ray, connected in a very deep way. So much so that they began talking about Jesus and talking about God and having very deep spiritual conversations to the point where often I would walk by and Eric would be sitting there with them talking no, I loved that because I love introducing people to new people. For me, that's, I feel like that's one of the reasons why I'm on this planet. It's to help connect people to each other, bring people into a relationship with one another. So I was super thrilled that they connected with each other. You know, I don't know what happened. I wasn't there for all of the conversations. I don't know, you know, what went on. I, like I said, I've, I've lost so many people now. You never know what's in someone's head. I did not know that Eric was struggling I mean i knew again i knew he had problems i did not know he was struggling but it's unlike any other death in my life except for my father's and i think that's why these two stick out in my head so much i had to watch my father die of a brain tumor with no way to help him when eric was dying there was no way to help him he made a decision to go live on the street for some reason He and the boyfriend, I don't know if they'd finally like broken up officially or what happened. I don't remember if the boyfriend moved. I can't remember any of all of those details at the moment. It makes me sad to think about it. The grief hits hard. The grief hits really hard. The grief hits really hard knowing that this man who wasn't that much older than me wanted to take his life and he willingly went to go live on the street. Now, I'm not a healthcare expert, but I do know that if someone that has HIV stops taking their medicine and goes to live on the street, that cannot be good. Living on the street's not easy anyway. And for a while, he seemed happy. For a while, living next to Alicia and Ray, he seemed happy. But he kept saying that he was going back to be with Jesus. No, there didn't seem to be a pattern of mental illness. Maybe there was. Maybe he did struggle with mental health. I have no idea. But me being too emotional, maybe that was him like saying that he couldn't deal with my emotions because he had his own that he didn't know what to do with. I have no idea. We never talked about that part. He seemed very in control. He seemed very other than, you know, the the partner who was abusive to him. He seemed very aware. Like, I didn't know about the meth and the sex addiction and all of that. Like, I didn't know about all of that. I knew about the HIV status. Like, I knew about that from the beginning. He was very honest with me about and open with me about that. But there's so much of me there in that time, in that time of starting a new career of being in my early 30s and going to beauty school and 28 to to 32 time that 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 solar return time that's when he came into my life he came in at that solar return period for me that's significant because unlike people other people in my life who I've lost that weren't older there wasn't a long period of time where I had to watch them die it was a post on social media and then all of a sudden they're not well and they're gone it wasn't someone in front of me Eric was in front of me and I remember when he stopped eating I felt like there was no more sound in the world I felt like there was no hope I felt like there was no way to go on I felt like there was no anything else was that my future I didn't have the abusive boyfriend. I didn't have the crystal meth problem or the sex addiction problem, but I have my own problems, right? We all do. And who's to say that mine weren't going to get to be too much for me? He seemed so much stronger than I was. And here he was willingly just like giving up and living on the street. I couldn't understand what that felt like. I'd, I'd, I'd witnessed him encounter racism. I witnessed it, so I knew that he dealt with that. I knew that had been an issue for him as well, where he just got frustrated with being, you know, a gay black man and, and the stigma that comes along with that from people. And we talked about that too. But it was a combination of many things. The grief is something that I will always carry with me, I can't do anything different as much as I would like to as much as I tried in that time as much as I felt powerless as much as it didn't feel like things were ever going to change that it was all over that one of the people that I cared for most in the world chose not to be here and I had to watch powerless and there was nothing that I could do I couldn't force feed him I couldn't make him take medicine I couldn't give him blankets. He didn't want them. He didn't want any of that. He didn't want food. I mean, at first he did, but after a while, he did not. And looking back now, I think that was the intention all along when he went to go live on the street. And it was literally right around the corner from where we lived. Think about him every day. Alita, I think you today and yesterday for the ways during the Aspire conference that you talked about your own grief and the ways that you've learned to become friends with it. I can't change it. I can't change that Eric is gone. I can't change that my dad is gone. I can't change that Mark is gone or Josh is gone or Regan is gone or Ben is gone or Stan is gone or Nana or... Grandpa, or Poppy, or Grandma Hattie, my dad's biological mother, or Uncle Dwayne, that was a whole other, that was a whole other thing. My uncle was shot. There was a robbery, and I believe it was at his store. Maybe it was at his home, but I think it was at his store. And someone that I know, Brookings is a small town. Someone that I know shot him and killed him. Now, he wasn't my dad's biological brother, but he was my dad's brother, and he was my uncle, and I did spend a lot of time around him growing up, and I did love him. And my Aunt Maria, my Mexican Aunt Maria, he married this Mexican woman named Maria who was so awesome and used to make tortillas, and I loved her as a little boy. I loved Auntie Maria, but yeah... Uncle Dwayne was shot. Now, I had long since not seen Uncle Dwayne. That was when I was living down here. The first time was many years ago, but that was disturbing as well. There's been a lot of sunsets in my life. There's been a lot of other types of grief. But being Leo, I equate the sun with the, you know, with personhood, and I certainly, you know, think of the sun. If you follow me on social media, I noticed the other day that the sun as it goes down in Los Angeles almost winks at you as it goes down. There's this like a little wink it does. I don't know if it's the Santa Monica Mountains or what, but there's something, this like wink that the the sun does. So maybe this podcast, Sunset Sounds, has been happening for a while. Maybe it's been bubbling up before today. I just hadn't thought about it. I hadn't thought about going and sitting somewhere as the sun sets I'm recording, right? The time shifts for a sunset. The sunset's not always at the same time. The sky doesn't always look the same. But for me, it's always been a time of day that's been significant. In photography, it's significant. In photography, it's significant because that time of day, twilight is the time that photographs are great. There's an extra way that photographs show up, lighting and things like that. So, twilight is a wonderful time to take photographs. Another amazing thing about sunset is dawn and sunset are times of day that are really great for meditation. It's really great to get quiet, to sit, to be in that space. There's something transformational, something spiritual that happens at dawn and sunset. There's something transformational that happens at dawn and at sunset. There's something transformational that happens at the rise of the sun and the setting of the sun. Cannot explain it. I am not as connected to the dawn of the sun, but the setting of the sun has always been extremely significant in my life. In each episode of Sunset Sounds, I'll be thinking about a different topic. I'll be thinking about a different sound. The sound today was the sound of grief. The sound of... Losing someone that is so important. The significance of that sunset. That significance of what that means to disconnect from someone who's no longer physically here. That energy of Eric is still here because I can feel it. Tonight when I was thinking about him during this podcast, I could feel him smiling. I could remember his face. I'm learning that grief is a really important part of my story. I'm learning that it's okay to feel that, that I don't have to change it, that I don't have to look for the day that I'm going to feel great about everything, because maybe I don't feel great and that that's okay, that that's okay not to feel great, that that's okay to feel grief, to feel sad, to not know when that's going to end, to not know when the memories are going to come of these different people, because I never know, I never know what's going to trigger a memory about one of these people that I've lost And there's been so many of them. I think about the ways, as I look at the lighted swan boats here in Echo Park going across the lake around the fountain, I think about the ways that we come and go and come in contact with one another and the things that we mean to one another. The way the sun warms our bodies, the way the sun warms my body, connection warms my body. Conversation that feeling witnessed, that feeling seen, that feeling heard, that time that we come together, whether it's on Zoom or in person or however it is, that time that we connect when our paths cross is so precious. We don't know how long we're gonna have with someone. We don't know how long that amazing person, or maybe person that dresses crazy, we don't know how long they're gonna be around and living into the beauty of it and loving the beauty of it trusting the beauty of it so that it's all for the good well, the sunset is for the good it's part of how the planet sustains life the nighttime and the dew and all of that it's all part of the sustainability of life the light and the dark, it's necessary the dark is necessary the quiet is necessary the setting of the sun is necessary is grief necessary? I just think it's a fact of, of life on this planet right? There's a regeneration. I even watch the ducks as they, you know, the things that have bloomed over the summer that are dying back. They're like, they're going up to the, you know, the stuff that's in the pond and they're eating it. It's all connected. We're all connected. I can't wait for more episodes of Sunset Sounds. I look forward to talking about more things that make sounds in the world around me. People, places, things, organizations, causes, ideas, prayers, books, who knows. Just each time I sit down at the sunset, and they might be daily, they might be monthly. I might record a few and then take a year off, I don't know. But I love the sunset, and I love the thought of sitting in the park under a tree, listening to the sounds of the sunset, and recording I'm recording on a theme, and today's theme was the people that I've loved most that I've lost. Thank you for listening to Real Good Stuff. This has been a special series, Sunset Sounds, with Scott Clapson. Have a wonderful evening, a wonderful day, whatever that means for you and however that shows up in your life. Find a way to be grateful for it, because even the darkness is something to be grateful for. Thanks so much for listening. Bye-bye.